Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Holger, welcome to the War Room. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's get into the newest book on a knife edge, How Germany Lost the First World War. I was telling you before we got started, we've been talking a little bit about this era on the show. It is an era that seems to be getting some resurgence, at least at, pop- at the popular level, maybe at the scholarly, scholarly level it's been talked about. But at the popular level, you start to see shows and stuff coming out about it. Any idea why there's a resurgence in World War One? Well, um, if, if we are um, looking at the market, we'll say the interplay between authors and audience, we, we can see an enormous boost of World War I literature around the centenary. So the centenary was from 2014 and to, to 2018. And some books even um, preceded the centenary, basically came already in 2012, so that they caught the interest of the market before the others came. The most famous example for that is Christopher Clark's Sleepwalkers, which was published in 2012 and became um, a worldwide um, mega success and a very big success in Germany as well. So we can say my book, when the German version was published in 2018, came even, um, relatively late in the day. And there, there was a lot of interest around the centenary very much around 1914, uh, 1914, 1914. And then uh, during, um, you know, for four and a half years, no market allows that. So uh, there were then islands of interest. And in 2018, there was a second um, resurgence. So this is basically um, where the main publications of the First World War were published in the last, let's say, 10, 20 years. There is a constant interest in the First World War. There is a um, community of World War One aficionados who are very much interested in the topic. Here in Britain, we have a First World War or a First Western Front Association. People who are meeting to discuss nothing um, else than the First World War and every conceivable and unconceivable aspect of the First World War. So we have a constant stream of debates, which for for an American audience can be compared with the Civil War. You know, the Civil War is now more than 150 years ago, and still there are many, many, many people still debating uh, the Civil War as if it had happened only 10 years ago. So we have this kind of platform of broad interest. Okay, so in the U.S., most of the audience is going to be familiar with the Third Reich, the Nazi Party from World War II. The, the political makeup of World War I, though, is probably not as readily available to us or thought about it, uh, as often. What was the political makeup of Germany in World War I? Mm-hmm. Before I answer your question, Ryan, let me, uh, let me say one thing. The First World War um, occasionally got even the label that it is um, in in the United States a forgotten war. 
or <clears throat> sidelined or something like that. People don't reflect upon. I personally think uh, it deserves um, a lot of American interest because uh, without the First World War, I don't think the United States of America would have become this world-leading power they are today because they were basically pulled into this war and that made them a world power in the sense that they really were deciding the war practically against their will because they they did not want to participate in the first world war in the first place for that reason it definitely deserves also american interest it now um, what was the first part of your second part of your question again yeah we're familiar i think on some level with the nazis the third reich okay so the german exactly the german uh, the german um Standing. What was now with the first world? Well, there's a famous um, word by Rodolf Cannon, American scholar, American diplomat, who called the first world war the seminal catastrophe of the um, of the 20th century. I could not agree more because the first world war was a watershed, and without the world, the first world war and what it brought about. There would have been no national socialism. There would have been um, um, also no Second World War, of course. And so if um, the First World War was a very decisive political and military event um, for the entire duration of, um, of the 20th century, and to make this even more plausible, um, without the First World War, Lenin would have remained an exiled anarchist uh, extremist, not anarchist extremist in Switzerland, who could not dare to come home. And um, he would never would have got um, um, the opportunity to take uh, power in Russia. So we are speaking about um, the Russian communism taking power, um, grabbing power in 1917 and then running the show up to the crack up of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. So this is also a very, very significant event. And um, an old school of historians, you know, in the 1960s, for example, considered always the beginning of contemporary history, um, the year 1917, because they said in 1917, during the First World War, two things happened. The first one, the United States of America entered the First World War. The second one, the communists took over in Russia. And dates were the determinants of, um, of the 20th century in many aspects. And for that reason, okay, the Third Reich is, of course, a very, you know, very spectacular um, and in many, many, uh, of course, extremely important and also extremely well-researched and um, omnipresent because every history channel has constantly something on the Second World War and on Hitler and the Holocaust, and, um, you name it. And I don't say that it is unimportant. I say only in the sequence of events, the First World War was a watershed. 
Yeah, if you look at what happened at Versailles um, and kind of the the impact of that, and so there's there's a lot of things that we're, you know, and, and I wonder if this is part of just the times that we're in. Whereas growing up, you know, born in '85, growing up, the amount of history you got in school was very small, very limited, you know, and so now, and I think for my parents, the amount of history they got was small, but then when they were adults, you know, raising me their access to history was still very small, very limited because you might have a handful of TV stations. Cable news was kind of coming around, but there was no podcast. There was no, you know, and so now we're kind of in this new era where you can access great historians and scholars and books and podcasts. And now we're really trying to get a grasp of all the history that's gone on. And so it feels like some of this is being, you know, Mm -hmm. probably from the scholarly level, it's been talked about, but from the general public level, now people can get interested. And so I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things I just discovered was the Black Tom Island bombing, where the Germans snuck in and, and blew up this place in New York. I had never even heard about this. And it's like, how? How did you how does no one ever told me? Now I'm not a smart person, so it's quite possible everyone knows about this but me, but it feels like something that's kind of not talked about much in the US, despite what happened there. Yeah, but um, now you are a little bit hard to yourself because you um, nobody, not you, neither any professional historian on the planet can know everything which happened in the past. That is mission impossible because everything is history. So we have only to wait. And then even our talk now is, is a part of history. Nobody can really know everything. And you have only islands of knowledge. So you have areas of competence. And um, you have to limit yourself on key events. Of course, I don't know how good um, American schools are in teaching history, but um, Woodrow Wilson, his idea to make the world safe for democracy, the United States entering the war in 1917, and um, Woodrow Wilson trying to um, reorganize the world um, after his own ideas and the 14 points and so on in Versailles are uh, definitely something which should be taught in American schools or not. So go, let's go to 1916 for just a second there. The Germans do come to the U.S. They do have these sabotage campaigns like with the Black Tom Island. What was the mindset from Germany so your, your your book is how they lost the First World War. Well, part of the reason they lost it is because they pissed the Americans off <laughs> and, and got them involved. What was yes. the mindset? Did they think they could cripple them before they got in? Like, why take that risk? Yeah, okay. Um, first thing which I want to mention to embark on your episode of German sabotage in the United States of America one of the persons who get got kicked out of the country because of um, being linked to sabotage acts was a German uh, military attaché, Franz von Papen, a person who in the Weimar Republic became chancellor. He went then to Germany and he tried desperately to convince his superiors that um, the United States of America would be an extremely strong enemy and that everything has to, had to be um, done 
to um, to prevent them from entering entering the war. So basically, he said, "Let me tour through Germany." and make uh, clear to people how strong the United States of America are and how dangerous it will would be to bring them into the war. So even one of your sabotagers <laughs> was of the opinion that um, um, something like the unlimited submarine warfare was a bad idea. And indeed, the declaration of the unlimited submarine warfare on the 1st of February 1917 is, I would say, the cornerstone of my book. So basically, the moment in which the United States entered the war, the war was lost for Germany, with America remaining neutral. The Germans were in a situation they could not win. I don't make the claim they could have won, but they would not have lost either. So basically, it was the First World War was a perfect stalemate, and without the U.S., the stalemate would have continued. This is, of course, partially hindsight and partially something which the people at the time already said, also on the German side. And now the big question, why the hell did they do it? So basically, they lost the war in an afternoon when the in German headquarters in Pless the Kaiser and the head of the Navy and the heads of the army, Hindenburg, Ludendorff, Holzendorf, um, and, um, and some others were meeting and discussing submarine warfare, yes or no. And then they decided for yes, they lost the first world war in an afternoon. And why did they do that? And the point was that um, the Germans were was suffering a food crisis. That is very well known. And there was a bad harvest in 1916, which caused in Germany the so-called turnip winter, when people had to eat turnips because they had a ration card system, but the rations per day were dropping on 800 calories per day. That is not enough, of course. So the German people had a serious problem and the mood was not Good, of course. The military situation was more than okay. So it was quite, even quite successful. They had conquered uh, Bucharest before um, Christmas 1916. So they were militarily successful. And, but they were saying, we have to somehow to, to bring the enemy to negotiate. And they made a peace offer. This is now the first step. They made in December 1916 a peace offer. Not only Germany, but all central powers made a peace offer. And they wanted to negotiate. But Entente powers rejected that flatly. Said, no, we don't want to negotiate with you. And then the German leadership said, well, you see, we cannot negotiate with the enemy, we have to bring that militarily to a decision. Because what can we do? If the enemy does not want to talk to us, we have to force him. And how to force the enemy? Then the German military leadership did something which they normally did not do. They called in civilian expertise. Because not only Germany had... Um, a bad harvest. There was a bad harvest in, in the entire northern hemisphere. 
and um, and they said as long as a bad harvest lasts, we'll say until summer 1917, there is a bottleneck in British supplies. So you, you can make um, a calculation if you know how many ships do you need to ship grain to Britain. How many ships are busy with transporting British troops and goods and transporting other stuff and so on? How many, how much shipping is needed in Britain to keep Britain alive? And they said, well, if we do the unlimited submarine warfare, then we can calculate that the Brits running out of shipping. But there's a window of opportunity. We have to use a window of opportunity before the harvest in 1917 kicks in. So we have to use a bad harvest and the, uh, and the bottleneck in British shipping to tip the British shipping to a, to a point that, um, that they have to negotiate. So this is basically the technical aspect of it. And there were, of course, a lot of calculations some some grain traders and so on had um, had um, written a memorandum and uh, some others like the vice chancellor Helferich, who was a banker, said, well, the memorandum is full of mistakes. Erzberger said, they're a um, politician, there were a lot of mistakes in the statement. But at the end, they decided to do it. And the big question is, what did they think about America? So uh, unlimited submarine buffer was, of course, direct, directed against the, the British and not against the Americans. But they knew, because of the Lusitania and, and so on, they knew when we declare unlimited submarine warfare, the Americans probably will enter the war. Probably. You know, they said probably. But will what will happen next? If the Americans declare war, fine. But they are already delivering war material to the to the British and to the French. This cannot get much worse than it is because the Americans are already helping our enemies to stay above water. So the only thing we can do to stop that is to torpedo ships so that the deliveries don't arrive. And if the Americans declare war, then probably they will put... Um, a few hundred thousand volunteer army in the field. Okay. First, they have to come to France and then probably we will be able to manage. What they did not think is that the Americans will introduce a draft and send several million men. They thought this is according to American tendency of isolationism and George Washington's warning of not getting involved in, in Europe and so on. They thought this is utterly unlikely that this will happen. And there they were fundamentally wrong. And um, they were also, of course, wrong in this memorandum regarding British shipping and so on. There were a lot of mistakes in this calculation. It did not work out, as we know. And um, regarding the attitude of, of the United States of America, even President Woodrow Wilson thought about, in this particular moment, thought about sending only a volunteer army. So the Germans were not alone with that idea that if the Americans intervene, they will send only some volunteers. Even the Americans thought that. And um, the point 
to bring our complicated and convoluted story to a headline. The point of that is that even very clever people can make decisions which with hindsight are utterly wrong and catastrophically wrong, look like complete idiocy, but they have a kind of rational background so that if you see how they made the decision in the time, they were they had arguments. The arguments were wrong, but they were not wrong in the sense that a lunatic or um, a mad dog is running around or something like that. Yeah, we talked um, a few episodes back on the idea of game theory. And, you know, the, the on one hand, game theory can kind of be useful to, well, if we do this, they might do this. But then when you kind of go three, four, five levels deep, you're just kind of guessing on how people might respond and how they might react. And so, but it is kind of a useful exercise, at least to think through some possibilities just to kind of get an idea of what might happen. And the more I've kind of looked into uh, various historical things is it's really weird and it's hard to, it's hard to tell history this way because I think of someone like, um, you know, this is from world war two, but Ronald Spears um, and then John Bassalone, two of these are very, valiant warriors for the u.s they they fought they charged they attacked the enemy one made it and one died and and so but they both kind of had this go get them we're going to go lead lead by example and and so if you wanted to say what's a better strategy well for john Bassalone, he died in the war but for ronald spears he made it and so it, it makes it very tough as you say when you go back to under you, you can when you put yourself in their shoes you can look at their arguments, but it's a lot easier for us to kind of cast judgment on them because we have the hindsight. But there's probably a lot of things that we would struggle to rationalize out if we tried to evaluate all of the decisions that people were making back then. Because it's just it's sometimes you're Ronald Spears and sometimes and I'm not trying to be disparaging to John Bassalone, but sometimes you're just it, it just doesn't work out where you make it off the island. And so um, hearing you talk through this is, is quite interesting because. They made some miscalculations, but to your point, I guess now with the benefit of World War II and kind of how the U.S.'s foreign policy is now, me looking back, it's like, yeah, if you piss the U.S. off, they're going to come to war. But but as you say, it's like, oh, okay, I didn't think about that. That hmm, Yeah, they probably didn't think they were that committed to it. And so they'd already bombed them on Black Tom Island by this point, and that didn't get them involved. And so, yeah, I can kind of see that now. That Yeah, maybe they did see a a uh, a draft strategy might not be something that the U.S. would employ. Yeah, and um, I would say, especially in the history of war, you will have uh, many examples where mistakes were um, made. Uh, so um, utterly miscalculations were made, but were made by quite clever people who thought that they have a lot of rational arguments at their side and things may work out this or that or that way. And we know with hindsight that all of that was erroneous. That is uh, probably more the case than the opposite. So because in war, everything normally does not go according to plan. You start something and you are surprised. And um, 
the way I handle it in my book is not, that I'm not debating primary source material with uh, basically I that I take my own hindsight as somebody living more than 100 years after the event and I contrast the contemporaries with my hindsight. This would be very cheap to do that. No, but it is uh, possible to reconstruct the debate among the contemporaries because we have among the contemporaries also some people who said one moment. This is dangerous. Don't do it. We had people, and I make only one example as a public intellectual, the famous German sociologist, Max Weber. He said, when he, he dealt also with the submarine warfare, he said, I was not worried about the outcome of the war until now. Because the submarine war, the declaration of the submarine warfare is the first time that I really think we may lose it. So we had also some people in the time who said that. And this is, of course, a totally different level if we have then the debate among the contemporaries who debate decisions. And this is maybe also a slight difference between, um, to your example, which shows basically two warriors going to battle with an individual approach. Well, and the only reason I'm highlighting the individual approach is for all the men who charge, like John Bassalone did, mm -hmm. most of them don't get their stories told because they're not, they weren't popular like he was, and they just died in the field of battle. And so you don't really hear their perspective. You don't hear why they thought what they did. And so on, on uh, Spears' side, you do get to hear a little bit of it. And, and all I'm pointing out is it's very hard to argue well, should you have more people like Spears and Barcelona or not? Because you don't get a lot of perspective. You, you, you get a very, to your point, it's a very, we have a very limited knowledge base, um, understanding how much you can read of their diaries, not many of them wrote diaries. So you start thinking just on the individual level and how that would shape a battle. And then you try to go up to the, the top level where they're trying to evaluate all of these things. And it becomes quite convoluted. And you're really, you're really speculating at the, at the top level of, the German authority, there's a lot of speculation. They have the the math that you alluded to. You said something that's wrong, but they, even then you're, you're speculating that if we do this, they're going to respond this way. And then we could respond this way. And that, there's just a lot of guesses going on. And if you go to the individual level, someone charging across the battlefield, it works sometimes. And sometimes it works mm -hmm. because there's a stray bullet that you didn't see. You could have seen mm -hmm coming and it shifts everything and so obviously the higher you go up it, the harder it is to predict not the easier it seems mm -hmm. okay so we we don't disagree on that one <laughs> so with that being said the germans thought that the u.s would have a uh, volunteer army they didn't expect them to to do a draft they were already providing weapons. So the impact, the projected impact wasn't um, as high as what it turned out being. And you say that that's a reasonable position for the Germans to have thought at the time, right? Well, a reasonable, um, you know, they, they thought they have um, um, reasons and uh, there were, um, there were people 
some of them were also driven. For example, the, the people who wrote this memorandum, you know, this statement about uh, grain shortage and shipping shortage in Britain, there was always um, an amount of ideology in play. So um, they are not completely harmless, but um, they were not, um, this was not a completely mad decision driven by no reasons at all. That is the only claim I have here. Okay. After the U.S. enters, you say essentially that afternoon, Mm -hmm. it's over. Was there things that they could have done that could have stopped the U.S. at some point before they get troops on the ground or stuff? Or, um, I mean, was there any kind of window that that post U.S. announcing they're coming in before they start fighting that the Germans could have done something to stop the U.S.? Um, the U.S. did not want to be stopped. And um, Woodrow Wilson said at some point um, that he wanted to bring the war to a clear German defeat and did not want to give Germany any terms before that was going to happen. So this was basically also the British position. They they thought they have to break German military might, because if they don't do it, um, there is no peace, there is only an armistice. So that is maybe something vaguely comparable with some people speaking about Putin now, saying, uh, we have to defeat the guy because if we let him get away, we have no peace. We have an armistice only. So that was the position. And now we we are in the field of counterfactual history. So could the Germans have done something different from the moment uh, the United States of America entered the war in April 1917? Um, of course, they could have made a lot of things differently. Um, one of them would be, for example, making the big spring offensives in 1918. Germany made five big offensives and became then very weakened because of the losses, despite conquering a lot of territory in northern France, but this did not bring a big benefit. Instead of that, they could theoretically have stayed in the defensive and let everybody come. So basically, then also the American troops would have been in the very unfortunate necessity to run in against extremely well-fortified lines on the Western Front against an army which was not yet as weakened as the German army in autumn 1918. And this German army in 1918 was not very mobile. So they had a problem. They had not a large lorries. They had no rubber. Um, um, they, they, and the horses were not well fed and so on. But they had tons of weapons, of guns, of machine guns, of ammunition because of the Hindenburg program. So we'll say the big Hindenburg program was a big armaments program. So they had plenty. And if you imagine the task is to storm against the Western Front, a trench system, extremely well fortified. 
then if there had not been again if if there had not been a revolution in in germany you know the mood in the united states would have probably not been particularly good if hundreds of thousands of casualties had to be reported from northern france okay and the reason i asked you that question is because i wanted to get so the five offensives so let's go back to the same argue, argument you made earlier, which is they had a reason, it was rationale from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they could have had bad information and all the stuff that you've already said. So why did they choose the five offensives and did they consider the alternative that you just mentioned? Well, the answer is no. They did not really consider an alternative because they thought the German home front does not um, allow to go on indefinitely. And, you know, a defensive strategy in war means that potentially the war goes on indefinitely because at least you cannot choose the moment when it stops. So you're at the mercy of the enemy. So we have to bring that to a conclusion. Point one, point two, there was a broad public uh, stream on German public opinion who saw that the German army would be able to do that, to bring the war in 1918 on the Western Front to to a decision. So we had um, uh, not only the general staff, Hindenburg, Ludendorff, but uh, probably the German populace and also some politicians were believing that. And the reason for that was, first, that they had defeated Russia. A forgotten fact of the First World War is that Russia lost the First World War and Germany won the First World War on the Eastern Front. So they thought we were able to beat the biggest European power militarily and now we are, now our back is free and we can turn all of our forces to the West. Point one. Point two, they had in um, October 1917 inflicted a massive defeat on the Italian army at Caporetto. Well, say, um, you know, trench warfare is terrible and it is terrible to attack there, but the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians were able to break through the Italian lines. And once you break through a, a trench warfare, a trench warfare system, trench system, then every army entrenched is on the run because they cannot evacuate um, in time with all the equipments and so on. And this meant that then three, four, five hundred thousand Italian soldiers were on the run. And um, Italy barely uh, avoided a collapse. And um, the German population thought that something like Caporetto would now be possible on the Western Front. Um, now that the German armies from Russia could be turned westwards and they underestimated the difficulty at the Western Front and the military experts were probably the most skeptical ones because they knew that the British and the French had tried something like that in 1915, in 1916, in 1917. They attacked always with massive superiority on the Western Front and the outcome were only casualties. 
So it's it's a situation to where I'm understanding, even though they went on these five major offensives, the military leaders, strategists, et cetera, they weren't confident it was going to work. But for them, the the argument of just being defensive wasn't something they would consider for the reasons that you gave. And so mm-hmm. once they brought the U.S. in, from their mm-hmm. perspective, this was really their only opportunity. And they had some reason to believe that they might have better success uh, with Russia and Italy, but still they were concerned it might not work as well. Yeah, but we can also um, make a completely different argument. You could also ask, uh, well, if the Germans wanted to to conclude peace, why did they not embark on uh, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points? Because the 14 points are from January 1918. Theoretically, the Germans could have said, oh, well, brilliant. We agree with the 14 points. Let's conclude peace on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's ideas. Well, they even tried something like that in a lukewarm way. The German chancellor by then, his name was Graf Hertling, tried to engage Woodrow Wilson in a kind of um, public exchange of debate. So he was speaking in the German parliament in public and so on, tried to engage, but Woodrow Wilson did not follow up on that. And um, But this was lukewarm enough, so uh, the Germans could have embarked much more energetically on that. But they did not do that because if you read the 14 points, not only that uh, Woodrow Wilson had losses for Germany in mind, like, for example, Alsace-Lorraine, um, some territories in, um, in, in the east, Danzig, and so on. But the main point is this would have meant Germany has to throw um, its allies, the Austro-Hungarians and the Turks, in front of the bus to get out. That basically, to make a long story short, that would have been the result of it. And um, the Germans did not want to do that because they had started the First World War to aid the Austrians. And now throwing the Austrians under the bus to get a peace would have been not the nicest of all things. But at the end of the day, the 14 points were exactly the... um, the element which brought the First World War to a conclusion, because everybody said, well, at the end, the Germans surrendered. Wrong. The Germans did not surrender. They made agreed on an armistice, and the promise from the Allied powers was that the armistice pre, um, um, is the first step towards a peace, which will be modeled around the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson. That was a German condition. We stop fighting, we retreat, we disarm, but the peace will be modeled around Wilson's 14 points. And the problem with the Versailles peace later was that the Allied powers and even Woodrow Wilson himself stepped away from the 14 points. So the Germans felt betrayed because they said, You promised, we we stop fighting, the peace will following um, the 14 points, and now all that is not any more valid. So they felt betrayed, and they also openly said that in Versailles. For example, Brockdorf Ranzau, so he was German foreign minister, he was speaking in Versailles. Wilson felt massively offended by the guy. 
massively. But at the end, um, the question is undeniable that the 14 points were violated by the victorious powers. And the Germans made the mistake to stubbornly insist on what they thought is a good right. It would have been much better in the German interest to be more flexible on that one and acknowledge, well, we lost the world war and that is normally not for free. Okay. You mentioned, you mentioned people saying people that saying. surrendered is a misconception, but what is a couple of other misconceptions about World War One that people like me might have? Well, um, the, the question of the misconception is we have to start with um, what you know and what you discuss. And I would say um, that is individually very different. So every individual you ask probably will give you a different answer on that one. If we take now um, the First World War, the explanation of the First World War, and the German role in that, I think that the German role in the First World War is normally considered of that of a, mili a highly militaristic power who was on a trip of conquest. So, and this is also linked to, uh, um, to the research of the German historian Fritz Fischer, who has published a big book on German war aims and so on. All that is also true. There were a lot of plans of conquest, but the um, the story is a slightly or massively different one because Germany stumbled into the First World War not because they wanted to conquer Europe, but they mishandled the July crisis 1914. They made a lot of uh, massive mistakes. They were also overconfident in their military abilities. And then from 1916 onwards, they tried to get out to, to find a a kind of compromise settlement. But as we say, it takes two to tango. And if um, if the other side does not want to negotiate, you are completely hanging in the air. And then inside Germany, we had two groups, the hardliners who said um, everybody who is dreaming of compromise is living in illusion because the enemy does not want to compromise. The only way out is to win militarily. So we had the German hardliners, and then we had the German peaceniks who wanted to have a um, negotiated peace, but they they had no real chance because they, if they made, for example, a peace offer like in December 1916, and this was flatly rejected by the other side, what what can the peace party do? And they, they can repeat that. And they repeated this in 1917. And it was, again, without any consequence. They invited the Western allies also to the peace um, negotiations in Brest-Litovsk. And the Western allies did not come. And they made, I think, 20-plus secret feelers to, to broker um, a negotiated peace. And all that came to nothing. So they. They were clumsy and unable, but they tried. And so I would say 
for that reason, the, the, the popular image of, of the First World War, that Germany is a hegemonic power or is a power which wants to become hegemonic and is a kind of predecessor of Hitler and the Third Reich that wants to conquer Europe, that this one needs probably a correction. Okay. We are going to link to the book in the show notes. Um, is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? Do you have a website, social media, anything like that? There is um, from Cambridge University Press somewhere a podcast with me where I um, explain the book. So they ask me a number of questions and I answer on them. That would probably be, be the best link in this context here. Okay. Uh, I think I found that. So I will link to that in the show notes. Uh, assuming this is the right link. Um, it was wonderful to have you on today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.